morning. You take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of John. In fact, you can go to the first chapter of there. We're going to be in chapter 5, but I reference some things here in chapter 1. As this is building, and really you're going to see a, a change from what we've seen as far as interactions with Jesus, interactions with his miraculous ministry, his healing ministry, his teaching ministry. Uh, those are going to change as we return to Jerusalem, and we're going to see conflict arise. We'll look a little larger section through verse 18, which is the beginning of an even larger section where Jesus really is going to use this miracle as a setting um, to discuss his equality with God, which of course comes back to what we've seen early in chapter 1. So let's pray together and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you this morning for the time that you have given, uh, but more than that, Lord, we don't just need time. Um, as we just sang, we need your son. Um, we know that everything in this world is on its way out in the sense that um, sin has had its effect, not just in the human heart, in our own nature, which we pass on to the next generation, but even in nature itself. And we need one who will come and restore all things. And as we so gloriously saw over the last year, when we looked at the revelation of your son in John's revelation, we were reminded of the glorious future that awaits and the need and the necessity of that. And so we long for that moment and we just pray that your spirit would illuminate our hearts as we look to the one who we long for to return, uh, your son, Jesus, as we see him presented here in the gospel of John. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, no one likes to be rejected. If you're like me, and you asked me to think of a time when I was rejected, it's kind of embarrassing that I can start rattling off quite a few, actually. And I think harder, and I go, oh yeah, I forgot about that one. And that kind of stung, because uh, someone that I wanted to be accepted by, uh, you go all the way back to, I'm sure, grade school, you wanted to be liked, you wanted to be accepted, and you were rejected, and that sting kind of stays with you. Even as you get older and you're, you either, you know, your hair turns gray or you lose some of it, you start to feel, man, I can't believe I'm impacted by that all of these years later. There's something about us that wants to be accepted. But I want to submit to you that if we were the way we were supposed to be, made in the image of God in the garden, you would never feel that way. And you think about Jesus, who is, yes, the perfect image of God. He is God himself, but he's also the perfect man. And he's not going to base his emotions, his expectations off of anything other than what his father thinks. And for us as believers, we're going to find the peace that passes all understanding when we as well put our trust and our hope in what God thinks, not what other men and other women think. Going all the way back to John chapter 1, we're going to be in John chapter 5, but you see this over and over again about being highlighting that Jesus is God's son, which is going to be the issue really more than his healing ministry, more than him healing on the Sabbath. The issue will come out here, chapter 5, that they want to kill him, not just for the Sabbath, but because he claims equality with God. And what we know, verse 11, he came to what was his own, and those were his own did not receive him. He's in the world, verse 10 before, and the world is made through him, but the world did not know him. They're not going to receive him, but it's not going to change anything just because 
the world doesn't receive him. It's going to change nothing about his deity. It's going to change nothing about his purpose. It's just going to be reality. I've thought of the gospel of John. You can flip to John chapter 5. But I've thought of this gospel in many ways. Um, and I've read this other places. John's presenting an argument. He's presenting evidences. He's giving you here this sign, this sign. These are proofs. And so you kind of have a courtroom feeling. And so maybe in my head at times I've had a picture of Jesus sitting there and Someone's trying to prove that he is the son of God and he's kind of on trial. And as I saw something this week and read as well, I go, well, that's probably the wrong way to look at it, especially as we get here. The real issue isn't that Jesus is on trial. It's that we are. Humanity is. How are, it's not a question of is he? He is the son of God. He is the Messiah, as we've already seen declared by the woman at the well and those who've heard her testimony, but they don't believe just because they heard because they also saw and heard from Jesus himself in the last chapter, chapter 4. And so really, the question is, is the world going to receive him? And the answer is, no, they are not. But that doesn't say anything bad or anything wrong or anything deficient about Jesus. It says something very deficient about humanity. So we come to chapter 5, and you're going to see the beginning of this movement towards rejection. And I had a little more time to study this passage than normal because Pastor Montoya preached last week, and and I was struggling a little bit, and you really have to see this miracle not isolated. This healing at the pool of Bethsaida isn't isolated from a larger section of chapter 6 and even into the end of chapter 7 where they are rejecting him outright. Because we've kind of seen some rejection. He cleanses the temple. There seems to be pushback. But then we get this kind of nice picture where Nicodemus seems a little neutral. We even get it better in chapter 4 where the woman at the well says, this is... This man told me everything about my life. This is, has to be the Messiah. And then you see all of kind of that town come out and they believe. And this royal official, whether Jew or Gentile, we don't know, he believes. And that emphasis of belief and belief. It's so it's kind of encouraging. If you don't start to see rejection in chapter 5 and 6, you're going to be really encouraged because there's going to be these massive crowds that gather to see and hear Jesus. But chapter 5 starts to set up the expectation that Jesus is going to be rejected. And it's going to explain that rejection. And then you're going to see an initial kind of response of Jesus of explaining why it's true, what they're rejecting him for, but they're not going to listen. So let's kind of set up this by seeing the setting in the beginning verses of Chapter 5, the first five verses really just kind of set up a setting for the miracle. We're going to see two things. One, the power of Jesus displayed. And then we're going to see the rejection of Jesus explained. So firstly here, we're going to see what is the backdrop. It says in verse 1, and remember we woman at the well, we went back to Galilee. And uh, when he come down out of Judea into Galilee and then boom, Verse 1, after these things, he's back in Jerusalem. Why? Because there, it says, was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Which I think we've mentioned this before, but if you look at a map, it's a little confusing, but up is down. In the sense that Jerusalem is higher in elevation, but you go south from Galilee to get there. And so he goes up in elevation, back down to Jerusalem. So we just, explanation, this is kind of, why is he there? Why is he back? And we also know this is typically where he gets the most opposition to his ministry. And there, verse 2, in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethsaida, having five porticos. 
And in these porticos, so, um, you know, they're solid structures, not tents, but the idea of structures with um, covering. And underneath these, to get out of the sun, there are multitudes of those who are sick, blind, lame, and withered. And so the picture that's laid out here, and I imagine because it is a feast, there are more than normal. And maybe some have carried their family members who are disabled, who have different diseases, at least ones that aren't so unclean that they can be there, lame, sick, and they brought them there with this hope, as we're going to see, of healing. The Sheep Gate, you can read Nehemiah chapter 3, it has its purposes, it kind of gives a location in Jerusalem, but really the point is, they're there because they are sick, and there's something about this place that they want to be healed in. And so what you'll see here, and this is kind of a, a sidebar, but I think it's important here because it's worth mentioning, depending on what translation you have, I think ESV cuts it out, New American Standard, uh, LSV, which I'm using this morning, keeps it within brackets. And what the brackets are, are the translators helping you understand that these comments are not in the oldest manuscripts of our Bibles. The oldest Greek manuscripts don't have this verse. What is it? Well, it's probably likely a uh, scribal comment that worked its way into the text. In other words, saying, you may not understand this, so let me give you some more context of the culture of the day. And so, kind of halfway first three, you're going to see, at least what I see in the LSB, is this bracket, which is probably more commentary. And it's going to explain, what are they there for? Why are they waiting at this pool? Well, they're waiting, it says, for the moving of the waters. Verse four, for an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season, certain seasons, into the pool, stirred up the water, Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever sickness with which he was afflicted. And you can't even feel that, right? This is a comment. He's just making a comment to explain for the reader who wouldn't quite understand. And that's probably how it first came into the text originally. I don't want to take too much time to look or talk too technical about textual criticism, but I do want to say you can have confidence, though, in your scripture, because you're going to run into these, um, whether superscripts or things that kind of anyone's actually read the beginning of their Bibles typically it goes over the translation issues and those things but we do have thousands of Greek manuscripts fragments and the way we arrive at our Bible is they compare all those and typically they're going to go with the shorter reading of things but we have so many to compare is it reliable and even when you do have sign of a different wording you can almost always tell which is the original. There's a few places where it's difficult, but if you look at those and if you get into it, and I encourage you, because actually the more you study text criticism, the more you'll come away amazed at the accuracy of Scripture, because we obviously believe in the original manuscripts, the way if you look at our doctrinal statements, the original that are in Aaron and perfect, not the copies, but we can understand we have reliably the Word of God passed down to us. And there's no, even in those small situations, there's no significant historical or, or doctrinal issue at stake in those. But you'll see those pop up here and there. This is one of them here in John chapter 5 verse 4. And I think it kind of explains itself in the way that it makes this comment to help you understand. Some of the confusion that comes from that comment is whether that's a statement of fact. Is this really happening? Is the angel of the Lord really coming and stirring the water? I think the answer is no and we'll kind of get there, including the fact that this man hasn't been healed in 38 years and all these things, and it's in contrast to Jesus' healing, which is immediate, as we'll see. And what we learn in verse 5 is we're going to be introduced to, out of all of the many sick people, I think this is important, out of everyone there, Jesus picks this one man, 
There's kind of a lesson there too as far as this life in general. And in God's providence, he chooses this man. He doesn't choose the other one. Why? Because he is sovereign and he can choose to do that. But he picks him. And it's kind of interesting because you'll even see that he saw him lying there. And he knows that he's been sick for a long time. Well, how long? Verse 5 says he was sick for 38 years. Some translations have invalid. Um, obviously, the inability is communicated later. He can't physically get down into the pool. Someone beats him every single time. And he thinks that's the reason he can't be healed. So that kind of sets up the conversation of this story, which then will set up the theology that comes really more next week of the nature of Jesus as a person and his ministry. So the first thing we're going to see here, starting in verse 6, is you're going to see the power of Jesus displayed. The power of Jesus displayed. Note in verse 6 here, again, Jesus sees him, notes him out of all the people. Verse 6 says, and when he saw him, he sees him lying there. He knew, he sovereignly knows, he knows not just 38 years, but the days to the hours to the minutes, how long the man's been sitting there. And he said to him, do you wish to get well? It does seem like a bit of a kind of obvious question, but I don't think there's anything more. Maybe there's more in the conversation than what's recorded there, but it's simply saying, is this something that you want, which he's prompting the man to interact, the man to ask a question, and we're going to see the man throughout this whole section play an interesting role with understanding of the rejection and how is he going to accept, reject, believe, not believe in Jesus. But we might read that and go, this seems a little bit obtuse in one way. Isn't this obvious? But it's simply a way to get the interaction. I can remember, uh, many of you know that I spent a number of years volunteering for the fire department here. And I remember on the first few um, rescue calls, you'd go in and you'd see a distraught mother with a kid who's sick with high fever or someone who's difficulty breathing. And I remember early on, I'd catch myself doing very casual things like, how are you feeling as they're struggling to breathe? And you're going... I think that was a dumb question. I think that's obvious, right? So you kind of had the Captain Obvious moment go, I don't think that's a good question. And then you start to ask maybe better questions of, okay, go in and ask, when did this happen? When did this start? Where's the pain, right? Some more specific questions. Jesus asked this question, though, I don't think just to be obvious, but even probably just like the woman at the well, just like Nicodemus, He's getting after a desire, do you want to physically get well, but probably representing spiritually is, are you ready? Are you ready? As we're going to see later, because he connects the sickness to sinning, go and sin no more. So I think there's even more here, and so much of John, you're going to see him use natural things. Do you want to get well? And he's not just probably talking about the physical, but he gets the interaction started by asking this question. And yeah, might seem strange, but again, like Jesus has done, he interacts with the fleshly or the natural new birth like Nicodemus or living water. And she says, where can you get this water where I'll never thirst again in chapter 4? And here, he's probably thinking, as his response is going to be, well, of course. And he says that in verse 7. And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man. Does he get no, no, no person to help him? No man to put me into the pool where the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. So the man just simply points out, hey, I have physical limitations. Maybe you don't fully understand them, but uh, it's not as simply a desire. I, I can't get there. I can't beat the next person into this pool, which they perceive as a way to get healed. 
Jesus doesn't necessarily acknowledge this, doesn't necessarily clarify, is this, again, the case, true or false? But I think it's clear here, Jesus is not going to need miraculous water or some superstition. I think that's part of the contrast here. Just like the royal official's son who's dying, go home, he's well. He doesn't have to be there. He doesn't even have to touch. He simply says in verse 8, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. That's authority. Because that's exactly what happens in verse 9. Immediately, that is at the moment, it's immediate. The man became well, picks up his mat, and he began to walk. I find multiple things amazing about this. If you think of the contrast to what he's been waiting, and I don't know how long he's been there. We know he's been lame or invalid for 38 years. I don't know how long he's been sitting at the pool. I don't know if he comes and goes or who. If he has no help, if he's just there begging for food, etc., to sustain himself. But the promise of this superstition, it, it never gives what he really needs. And that's true today. Kind of thinking of a health, wealth gospel, you might hear people who, in the name of Christ, say, you do this and you'll get this, and that's not how it works at all. None of those superstitions or none of that kind of thing is going to have what you need to truly transform. Even if you could physically heal in certain situations, the issue isn't just, right, the physical, it's the spiritual, it's the inner man, it's the heart. Another verbal healing here where he just simply says the words and doesn't have to touch him. Note it's immediate and lastly that it is complete. And we're going to see many of these kinds of healings with Jesus' ministry. I think it's just important to note because sometimes you'll see in today's world people who will say there is, again, using the name of the church or even the name of the gospel, and there, there's going to be immediate, we're going to have physical healings or it's going to be some kind of revival where there are healings. And we as a church believe that there are gifts that were miraculous, that were sign gifts, that is they had a purpose in the early church to testify that what their teaching is exactly what Jesus taught. You look at the book of Acts, you're going to see the same miracles Jesus does here. You're going to see his apostles do, and you're going to see, oh, that validates. Are they really coming in the name of Jesus? Yeah, not only the name, but the power of Jesus as well. But those were for the establishment, Ephesians 2, of the church. And so it's not that I believe or we believe that God doesn't work or God doesn't do miracles today. It's just... I'm not looking out here trying to see who has the first century gift of healing or the first century gift of one of the miraculous or sign gifts. Because I don't think they're necessary and they're needed and they have ceased. But again, it doesn't mean God can't do or work. We're just saying that's not normative. If it was, I would absolutely try to find the one of you who has that gift, right? And if you had it and it was a sign to say you are the, like the apostolic sign, you'd see this same kind of healing, and that's not what you see in these kinds of events and these kinds of things. A lot of times it's partial or it's not even noticeable and I feel a little bit better in those things. No, when Jesus heals, it's immediate, it's complete. And it's not something that comes back. Like you know, a lot of times you see in those cases as well. Might be helpful for a little bit, but then the back pain comes back or whatever it might be. That's not the way Jesus healed. It was complete. And really, if you think about this, he picks up his mat and he walks. Think about the nature of that healing. If you haven't walked in years... Your legs have atrophied. Uh, you don't just get up and walk, right? I mean, he has to actually go in and miraculously give the man muscle to move. Just think about that. Again, the nature of his healing, the uniqueness of it. There's no question 
Um, and maybe that's even partly why John lets us know the 38 years. Maybe he doesn't heal someone who's been there for a week. This is an evidence to say, hey, he can do this in such a miraculous way. Well, John's note at the end of verse 9 is going to help us see what does this healing have to do with what's coming? Because the one thing you'll notice, even though we're going to see a little more interaction with this man, the difference here is John's emphasis on belief is missing. He doesn't heal the man because the man believes. The man doesn't know who Jesus is. Depending on how you view the man, you might even start to view, one commentary said uh, of verse 7, that this is probably more the response of someone who is uh, crotchety and old and who sat there a long time and is being a little snide. Listen, I got no one to take me. He's not even probably being very nice. He doesn't expect to be healed. He doesn't know who Jesus is. But this all sets up this issue of now, the end of verse 9, it was the Sabbath on that day. Because that's going to be everything for the, really the rest of this chapter to some degree. Because his reason for, why can't I do that? Because your rules don't apply to me. Why? Because I'm not just a man. I'm my father's son. I am God. Which, that's going to set off the issue of why they're going to pursue this early in his ministry. Trying to get rid of him. The healing sets up the opposition of all that is about to come and you're not going to be just like other places surprised because you know this explanation so we saw the power of Jesus is clearly displayed his deity is clearly displayed John shows you that but secondly starting in verse 10 he's going to start to explain the rejection and Jesus himself is going to give that kind of explanation of who he is and we're going to see why they reject him in the next eight verses Jewish leadership, I think that's when you see the Jews, uh, mainly it's talking about the leadership. And throughout the Gospel of John, it doesn't even talk about the synagogue or Sanhedrin as much, but it's, it's kind of referring to those in leadership, those who enforcing the rules, as it were, of the Sabbath here are probably the ones in view. But they're going to miss the forest for the tree. And that phrase, so you think about it, right? You, you, you kind of get focused on an issue, and you don't really want, okay, this guy has a mat and he's walking on the Sabbath, uh, but he was sick for 38 years and now he's walking? I think you've missed kind of uh, the big picture here for something very small. And at the core, it's not just here the violation of the Sabbath, but it's going to be what the Sabbath represents. In one clear way, you're going to see this throughout the literature. Some people call talk about um, Second Temple Judaism, the kind of temple that was built post-Nehemiah, as they move into tradition. And they give more rules than the scriptures give. And so I'm thinking of this section this way. So if you want to take notes, you can take them this way. That Here we're going to see three reasons Jesus is rejected. So the explanation of Jesus is going to come kind of in these three ways. There's probably a few more. But I think of this interaction here and of the rest of Scripture, you see, number one, that one of the reasons Jesus is rejected is because they elevate tradition over Scripture. They elevated tradition over the Scriptures, which is seen throughout all the Gospels. All right, so look at verse 10. Now it's the Sabbath, the end of verse 9, that day, and 10. So the Jews, again, the, probably the Jewish leadership, were saying to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to carry your mat. We'll talk about that in a moment and where that idea comes from. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Trying to figure out, do I like this guy or not? I don't know. I 
I got questions. Saying, it's not my fault. You blame that guy. But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. We're going to see here this Sabbath request. You're not allowed to carry your mat. Well, is that what the scriptures say? The answer is no, that's going beyond. If you go to Exodus 31, or if you want to go there later, you're going to see Exodus 31, verse 12, that Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, but as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, you shall surely keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between you, between me and you, throughout your generations, that you may know that I am Yahweh who makes you holy. Therefore, you shall keep the the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, pretty severe consequence. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Emphasis being on work. That the work you do for six days, you stop doing on this seventh day. Just a few chapters later, chapter Exodus 35, verse 2, it says, six days work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath, a complete rest to Yahweh. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Well, you're going to have to fill in the gaps here to get to where you can't pick up a mat or you can't pick up a pot or you can't cook for dinner. But that's exactly what they do. I think on its surface, on its face here, is it saying whatever you do, occupation, etc., don't do that on the Sabbath. It is God's day. Rest. This is for the Old Testament. It's for Israel. That's what they were to do. And so the normal employment that they had, stop doing that. That's what it's saying. But rabbinic tradition took that in the second temple, that is not so, uh, second temple Judaism, post-Nehemiah, and they built on that, and they have at least 39 forbidden categories of work. And one of those categories includes carrying goods, which is what they're referencing here. You are carrying a mat. You're not allowed to do that. It's not lawful, not lawful, I should say, towards their laws, not breaking, I don't think, what the scriptures say, but what their tradition has added to it. On the same way, I think, of this, the rejection of Jesus is that they sometimes, people will look and say, well, Jesus requires this, this, and this, or you Christians say you have to believe this or do this. And so oftentimes you're going, I, no, I, that's not true. And you have to walk people through what the scriptures say and what they don't say. Because it's very easy for all of us to elevate things to a biblical or scriptural level. You can add to it within structures. That is to say that there's some gray area. How are you going to do ministry as a church in 2023? Probably looks a little different than how you did church in 1910. You have to have a little bit of gray to go. What we're trying to accomplish here is what the scriptures say and accomplish that. And you might do it in a different way and that's okay. But sometimes tradition, it's like we've always done it this way. But you have to push that aside and go, okay, what is actually biblical of this. The lack of communication of biblical principles lead people to a place where they're going to put too much weight on one thing versus weight on what the principle in the scriptures really is. You see it often in personal standards, that idea that um, holiness is one-to-one, for example, with daily devotions. Now, I'm all for daily devotions, but all for you getting up at 4 a.m. and reading your Bible and praying. Um, I don't think that's ever a bad thing. 
But you never want to tie that to your justification. In other words, you don't want to tie that to God finding favor with you to where you get discouraged and disappointed because you are imperfect because uh, your imperfection is reflecting the reality. You are imperfect. So even things like that are good things, but you have to disconnect them from understanding I'm going to do what the scriptures require first. And yeah, there are other things that are good, and you add those as you can, and you do ministry as you can. What about Jesus' comment later here to the man? He finds him in the temple. So even notice that out of all the people, Jesus picks him, heals him. And Jesus doesn't wait for him. Jesus goes after him. It's kind of very specific. And I suppose my hope is, I tend to land on the side that I don't think this person, um, very much like Nicodemus, I don't think he's going to come away. And if John wanted him to come away as a believer, he probably would have used that term. So I don't think he believes. But I'd like to think later he does. But Jesus goes after him again, very individual, and says to him, Behold, you have become well. Look, you're walking, you're talking, <laughs> you're interacting, you're doing things you've not done in almost four decades. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And I think the worst is probably talking about final judgment. But do not sin anymore seems to imply, and I guess most of the commentaries seem to be in agreement that he would understand this as connecting his affliction or his disease with something that he has done, which absolutely could be the case. I'd say if that is the case, then I think you want to explain then John 9, so flip over to John 9. Verse 1, that you have situations where sin clearly does not cause physical illness or disease or any of those things. Because there it says at the healing of the blind man, chapter 9, verse 1, that Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him this, because this would be common, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because someone had to sin for him to be blind, right? That's what they're saying. Was it the parents? Was it the man? That this person should be born blind. Jesus answers verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this was so that the works of God might be manifested in him. Flip back to chapter 5. Now, so there are situations where God clearly uses. Sin is pretty much the cause of all sickness and all disease. Because it all goes back to sin entering the world. But, He's saying you can't draw a direct line there with this man or his parents or anybody else. Simply God used that to get glory in that situation. But you also have to look and say there are places in Scripture where there is a connection. Think Ananias and Fire, they lie to the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5 of Acts, they're killed. 1 Corinthians, people are sick. We're going to look at that passage this morning with the Lord's table. And people are sick because of inappropriately celebrating communion. And so there is some warrant for that. So I don't know if I'd come down as rock solid on it, but to say there seems to be a connection of saying, hey, don't go back to what you were doing. And purpose being, you were saved for not just to be good and healthy, but you were saved for holiness. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For us, similarly, you think, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves... It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. So your salvation is not because of what you have done or you have worked or how much you have given or how nice you've been. That's not why 
you are saved. No, you're God's workmanship, verse 10. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. What? For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's just getting that right, in the right order. This man was not healed because he was righteous. This man is not even healed in this case because of any indication of belief. He's simply saying, now that you are, walk, sin no more, live out being holy. The sealing out of purpose of holiness, our salvation clearly has a purpose of growing in godliness. That these works God has prepared, you're meant to walk in them. And so, just because God is gracious and loving and kind to save sinners like each one of you and me, doesn't mean you stay in that sin. And so this would go as well. Jesus is saying that there to this man and ultimately the, the call to follow Christ and always involves this same message. You're going to see later in John with um, the adulterous woman and it's going to be what? Go and sin no more. It's a consistent theme throughout. But it starts here with this issue of why are they rejecting? They're rejecting because they are taking something that they have put in code of law and say, he broke my rules. In other words, Jesus did not meet their expectations. So that's probably the best way to think of it in our modern day, 2023. Someone says, I reject Jesus because he's not who I think he should be. They reject what they believe over what the scriptures clearly teach. I think it's a scary place to be, but that clearly is a reason many people then and today reject Jesus. Secondly, you're going to see that many elevate fear. Fear of man, that is, over the fear of God. Look at verse 15. And that's where I have the issue probably with this man the most, where you kind of go, oh, I think, I don't, I don't think he was going to follow Jesus. Why? Because he immediately goes away and says, I have information to give that can get this man, clearly he knows is going to get this man in trouble. So he goes away, verse 15, disclosed to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews are persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So the man healed 38 years, goes right back to where he knows Jesus will be judged and, in essence, rats him out. Why? Because he, at that point, thinks... Who has the power in Jerusalem? These guys, not him. And he maybe is thinking already, I'm going to go back to work and I'm going to make a living and do all of these things. I need these people on my side. And who knows? But I think the root issue here is he's rejecting Jesus because he is elevating the fear of man over the fear of God. And that, I say it that way to say the concerns of individuals, of people, that's not bad. You should care what other people think. I mean, like, oh, don't care what people think. Well, to whatever degree. I mean, you should care somewhat. People are made in the image of God. You should care what they think to a degree. But the point is, it's way below what you think and what you respect of what God thinks. So the issue isn't so much fear of man, although you could say that's in general, but it's elevating that above the fear of God. You have to put the priority of fearing God above fearing man. The healed man sides with those who are against Jesus. One commentator Leon Morris said it this way, the man was not the stuff of which heroes are made. I agree. But this fear of man issue for us is true as well. Proverbs 29, 25 says, trembling before man brings a snare. So that's the idea of fear of man brings a snare, trip you up, cause you problems, cause you to sin. But the one who trusts in Yahweh will be set securely on high. And... I don't know if we'll get there next week, but if you just look over chapter 5, verse 41, 
You'll notice Jesus, the perfect man. What does he think about this? In the right way, he says, I don't need and I don't receive glory from men. Look at chapter 5, verse 41. I do not, he says, receive glory from men. That is, you reject me, because that's going to be the context we go into. You reject me? doesn't matter. I don't receive glory from you. It's not what he's after. He's after receiving glory from the Father. But I know you. He knows the hearts of men, remember? Chapter 2. That you do not have the love of God in yourselves. For their explanation. Why are they rejecting him? Because they don't love God. If another comes in his own name, or if chapter 43, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, that is, they say, follow me, and they're not coming in, say, the name of the Father, but in their own, you will receive him. And he goes on, verse 44, how can you believe then, when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the only God. So we're going to get back to belief, right? This is important in the Gospel of John. Do you believe? But he's just saying you can't believe when you receive glory from another. When you say it's more important what other individuals, what other people think, than what God thinks. That you're seeking glory from others, not, as verse 41 says, not seeking glory from the only God, from the Father. That was the issue with the man. He's healed, yes, but seems to be an issue. Well, if it's not fearing man, what is it? Should be fearing God. Proverbs 14, 27 says, The fear of Yahweh is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. And Ed Welch says this. This is a great book, so I don't give book recommendations a lot, but this is one. When people are big and God is small, it's a great title, it's a great book. He says, quote, all experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. People are big. That is the influence of the horizontal of what others think play massively on your life. They've grown to an idolatrous proportion in our lives. They control us since there is no room in our hearts to worship both God and people. Right? Can't serve two masters. Whenever people are big, God is not so it's kind of, it's an inverse relationship. One goes up, one goes down. It's just the way we were made. Therefore, the first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious, not other people. That is to say, God is big. God is glorious. You care more about what he thinks than what other thinks. Don't be responsive like this to this man who, even though healed, views God as smaller, views Jesus as smaller than those that are against him. So watch out. Don't elevate the fear of man over the fear of God. And then lastly here, verse 17 and 18, is going to introduce us to the next, it's kind of a transition here, where the wrong questions are going to get asked. Because in they're asking the wrong questions, they're going to come to the wrong conclusions. 17 and 18, set up what's to come. Jesus answers them, and we get more explanation, and then Next week, we're going to go into 19, where Jesus is going to give further exposition of this. But Jesus answers in 17, My Father is working until now, and my, I myself am working on the surface. Is that a big deal? Maybe not on the surface to us, but to them, who are you calling Father? 
And they understand what he's saying. No matter what people say sometimes about what does Jesus declare about himself, well, very clearly they understood. What does he mean by this? Well, a, uh, 18 explains. What he means is, God is my father. That is, I am equal to him is what he means exactly. Because verse 18 says, for this reason. So we saw reason one, you could say verse 16. He's doing the healing on the Sabbath, but that's not the real, real issue, or that's not the issue that's going to cause persecution. The real issue that's going to cause crucifixion, verse 18. This reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he's also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, which, of course, John the writer wants you to know that that's exactly what he's doing, which is what he says, chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus' explanation my father's working until now, and I myself am working, is simply his way of saying, what rules apply to me? What rules apply to Jesus? The same rules that apply to God. God works. He's been working. He doesn't take a break. Neither do I. Notice these people, whether the healed man or the Jewish people here, the leaders probably are saying something radically different than what we saw in chapter 4. Chapter 4, 29, come, they say, the woman at the well, see a man who told me all the things that I've done. Is this not the Christ? Or the whole town that comes out, they're saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we've heard for ourselves and know that this one is the, truly the Savior of the world. No, none of these individuals recognize the authority of Jesus, either as God or as the Christ, the Messiah. And they're looking for reasons to kill him, not to worship him. Like I said, sometimes, it's very similar. People reject Jesus because they don't know what he said. And they just, he doesn't meet their expectations versus trusting what the word has said. But even here, again, they're asking, even then, the wrong questions. When you ask the wrong questions, you're going to come to the wrong conclusion. And they're just completely sidestepping the fact that this man was miraculously healed. They're sidestepping what is clear and what they can see. Trying to ask questions that avoid the true issues of the gospel. That is, you can kind of look and say, well, I don't know how that's true, or we've seen how to see it, to believe it kind of ism where I, don't, I haven't seen those things, so I don't believe what's recorded. But also, there are things we do see very clearly. You see a sin and full and broken world. Do we need a savior? Do we need someone to reconcile all things? You can start asking good questions to which there is good answers. And I think the answer you'll come to is trusting and following after Christ. Think of these verses and the questions that should come and do you trust the scriptures when they say salvation is by faith alone through Christ alone? Do you fear God more than you fear man? and want to follow Jesus, even through persecution? And are you looking for ways to honor and glorify Him in your life rather than ways to avoid or minimize obedience? Well, again, this begins this section, the rejection of Jesus. And it really should be shocking to us, but even though it's shocking, we get the explanation. He's not following the rules of the Sabbath, 
and he's claiming to be God. It's exactly what's going on here. They don't recognize him as the light of the world, the bread of life, the living water, savior of the world. Think of chapter one. He is the word became flesh. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he, that is Jesus, has explained him from chapter one. Again, Jesus explains he is the living presence, as it were, that you can see God as spirit, that you can see Jesus as the word has become flesh. He's dwelt among us. As you look at this and you see these outcomes, obviously the one response is to be shocked. Another one is to personally take inventory and say, don't be one who rejects the claims of Christ. I pray you have personally recognized your sin, turned from it, trusting in the person and the work of Christ. And if you've done that, then I want to invite you to celebrate what he has done for us as represented by these elements, both in his body and his blood shed for us as we remember both his death and his resurrection for our sin and although Jesus does not need glory, he doesn't need, he's not lesser if people don't worship him. He's, he's independent, he's God. But yet we also know we are called to give him glory because that's what he has made us for. So let's do that as we are reminded of what he has done for his church, what he's done for us. Father, thank you for our time in your word this morning. Even now as we look together as we'll listen to these words sung, being reminded that it is Christ who has paid it all. We have not paid 10%, 5%, 1%, a fraction of a percent. No, it is Christ who has paid it all. That we can completely rest in his work on the cross. That we can have confidence that you were pleased and you raised him from the dead. And that we can look forward to with joy the confidence of the coming resurrection, even as we'll talk resurrection next week. Coming resurrection where we are joined in faith and become sight. Lord, let us reflect on our own hearts and our own lives this morning and the ways that we can honor you through all the various ways that you have given us and family and work. Uh, just encourage us through that, Lord, that we might do those things as a love offering, as our spiritual sacrifice of service to you. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.